Hello and welcome everybody. This is the Nick Dory Show, my podcast where I crisscross the animation industry and get to talk to really interesting and accomplished guests. I've been in animation for almost 20 years now and I still encounter tons of situations where I'm thinking, okay, how does somebody else deal with this problem? Do I do I have the best way figured out already or could I improve somehow? And this podcast is really about scratching my own itch. I get to ask smart people about their solutions to common problems and uh, I hope that you find this as interesting as I did. And I really appreciate any feedback on these episodes, so feel free to drop me a line at nick at nickdora.com, that's N-I-C-K at N-I-C-K-D-O-R-R-A dot com, or via Twitter or LinkedIn. And if you really like uh, what you hear on the episodes, feel free to give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, so it will show up for anybody else looking for similar content. This episode is kindly sponsored by Selection, the developers of Selection 2D, the software that is used in some of the most successful animation series in the world like Peppa Pig, Bluey, and Mr. Bean. Today, my guest is Jean Kitson, who runs the agency Kitson Press Associates with her partner Julie Press in London. They represent creative talent that works across all media, including writers, directors, producers, you name it. Jean started her own career working in production and development, including work on the first ever episodes of Midsummer Murders. She then switched to agenting and eventually started her own banner in 2014. Among the many things that we talk about in this episode are what an agent actually does, how they can help creators and producers with their challenges, and how you should approach an agent when you're looking to hire the talent that they represent. So with all this said, Please enjoy my conversation with Jean Kitson. Jean, welcome to the show. <laughs> I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. And um, people will have heard a short intro of you already, but uh, in your own words, can you share a little bit about how you ended up where you are right now? Sure. I mean, I came out of university with an English degree, which meant I wasn't really employable for anything. Uh, and I, I moved to London and I applied for everything in my new university's uh, newsletter, careers newsletter that week. And I ended up working for a TV drama company back in the days when it was that easy. Um, I lied and said I had a car so I could go to Pinewood Studios. And so I worked for a couple of years in TV drama. It's my one IMDB credit is uh, working on the first episode of Midsummer Murders. Mm-hmm. But after that, I went traveling for a bit and I wanted to kind of see how the rest of the industry fit together. And I applied to work for um, an agency just as a temp. Uh, and I was very useful to them because I lived close by and I spent a year filling in for assistance at very big agencies so working for writers agents actors agents book agents crew the whole thing it was a great grounding and I realized this is the world I loved so after a couple of side steps I worked for a sitcom company for a year I worked for another big agency for a year I started working for a fairly small tv and books agency um, and I was there for a long time 
um, 13 years. And towards the end of that, when I had children myself, I started working more in kids media and with kids writers, partly because I was watching more of it. And it brought me back to a love of animation that I'd had way back in my teens and 20s, but hadn't pursued. Um, and then six years ago, I left that company and started up what was then Kits and Management, grew to become Kits and Press Associates. And for me, the kids media side of that has grown as the company has grown. Uh, it's been an area that I love working with writers in. I, I love the media. Um, I love the work that's created. And so it's been a real adventure and a journey for me in really the last six years, growing the list so that now we at Kids and Press represent a really strong list of kids writers, preschool, six plus, even up to teen, tween, live action, animation, anything you can think of, we've got writers working in that field. That's, yeah, you have a very, very impressive roster and uh, we are also happy clients of yours. <laughs> and uh, um, you said that uh, there was something when you first worked at, uh, when you had your first agency, agency job uh, that made you love it. Can you, can you dig a little bit deeper into what, what was it that you fell in love with? Actually, it's, it's quite a shallow thing in that uh, what I love about being an agent, it's, it's a total job for people who get bored easily and who like being, <laughs> and, and who like being jack of all trades because it's a very mixed job. In some ways, a bit like being a producer. You know, there are so many different things that you need to be pretty good at. Um, you know, I love doing deals. I like the nitty gritty of agreements. I wouldn't like to be a lawyer. I wouldn't like to be a head of business affairs. I don't want to be doing them all day, every day. Uh, I love the creative side, but I'm glad I'm not a development producer and that's all that I'm doing. So for me, I quickly realized that that mix of different things was what I found really exciting about the job as a whole. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's definitely something that I've been hearing. It's a very versatile field. Um, what what would you say are are some of the most common misconceptions that people have about you know what what agents do? Um, that we lunch all the time. Although I think that's probably that's probably an old story. I think. <laughs> just go out and lunch all the time these days. Um, well, first of all, I think there's a big difference between what US debt agents do and what agents in the UK do. Um, that's still quite a different world. Uh, whereas in the UK and across Europe, agents are agents and managers. So we're both creatively involved with our clients and developing and managing their careers as well as the people who do the deals and look after the money side. Um, I think one of the other misconceptions is, one that I always think is that agents will go and get you work. Now that sounds kind of like the fundamental that you will go and get an agent for. But I still really believe that it is, you know, this is a business that works on personal relationships uh, and that it works on, you know, it works on writers having relationships with producers and development people. So as an agent, I very much see it's my job to work with the writer to think about who they should know, 
who I believe they would chime creatively with, that they would work well with and enjoy working with, um, and to make introductions. But I also think writers need to do a lot to maintain their own relationships and build those relationships, because in the end, those are what's going to be the things that will lead to work, ongoing work across the years. It's those creative relationships that they build themselves. So yes, we as agents have a role for knocking on doors, what shows are recruiting, who needs writers, putting writers up for it. But actually, I think the long-term building of a career, we try and support our writers in developing their own relationships. Um, so yeah, I think sit, sitting there and thinking your agent will just go and get you work, I think is a little bit of a misconception. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, but I, I, I think that the way you're, you're also explaining how you then help with, with building that, uh, that career and that there's actually this difference between, uh, the U S and, uh, and the UK, uh, style of agents. I think that's an important distinction. Um, yes. when, when uh, when we think about let's say a uh, an up and coming writer who does not yet have representation, I would assume that uh, even without an agent, it would behoove them to to build their build their own relationships and so on. Would you have any any tips for for someone like that? Uh, what where should they go? Who should they talk to? What what approaches or resources should they take a look at? Yeah, um, well, I I think, and actually the joy of social media is I do feel it's much easier to sort of get into conversations with people than it ever used to be. So first of all, I would always say you've got to have something to back up what you want to do. So it's what I call being market ready. You know, you need some work, whether it be script work, um, you know, something that you can show off the back of going out there if people ask you to see something um, or ask to see something of yours. So you need to be ready and kind of have an idea of what you want to be doing. So, you know, networking is great, but it really helps if you can have a kind of definite ask going into any situation or conversation. I mean, yeah. You can have those um, speculative conversations and see what comes out and things will grow that you don't know about where they're going to go. Um, but I think yourself having a slightly clear idea about where you would like to go will help you shape a conversation. So rather than just being a new writer going, hi, I'm a writer, uh, I'd love to work with you. What you is useful to be able to have in your own mind is I'm a writer who really loves four to six shows. These are three or four of my favorite shows. These are why I think they're so great. I would love to work on something like that. So mm -hmm. you don't want to go into a conversation necessarily saying those things, but what I'm saying is to have an idea of what you might want to achieve from networking. So that's moving us on a step further, but come back to where you can network. I mean, certainly getting to festivals, I think is, is a great way to start. It's not cheap. There's no, you know, there's, there's no way around that, but I think as a student or, you know, if you can sign up as doing a, a blog on something. So CMC will often support newer writers coming along to it. Um, Amacy, I think there are good rates for students. You know, if, if you can get yourself along to 
any of the big festivals and just start talking to people. I mean, I love CMC in Sheffield. I just find it an incredibly, that's a children's media conference and it's in early July in Sheffield. And I just find it a really relaxed place. I mean, it's been incredible for me as an agent to just go and start talking to people and start putting things together. And then you build that network out of there. Um, in kids media, LinkedIn is a phenomenal resource. I'm finding that a number of my clients are being approached directly by companies companies in India, um, Pakistan and Korea who are looking for writers and maybe aren't plugged into the official channels, but they are going out there and finding people on LinkedIn. So you can build your social media um, profile. Um, it's basic, but I still think having a website and just a place that kind of declares who you are is really useful. Um, and what I love about working in children's media is it does tend to be a bunch of people who are actually quite open to conversations. So I think you can get into conversations on Twitter. You can get into conversations maybe via LinkedIn with people who, you know, who are accessible. So actually the traditional way of going and knocking on a company's door, which you can still do, and I think you should always try the official routes, but I definitely think there is room to just start making some noise about who you are, what you would like to do. Um, you know, the, the means of production are slightly in the hands of the people at the moment. We can definitely go and talk to people directly in a way that wasn't possible even 10 years ago. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, some, that's some really good advice uh, for, for anyone, I think, starting out uh, and, and especially for, for, for writers. Um, is is there um, talking about you know people approaching each other? Um, if we turn the camera angle a little bit um, around and and let's say we have a producer who approaches you in search for a for a writer, uh, how should that producer ideally be prepared? Because I I would assume that you also get various kinds of of uh introductions and and are contacted via all these different means what would it what would an approach be that makes makes your life easy and the resulting relationship uh you know as as fruitful as possible from the get-go sure well I mean, it's difficult in these days of having to be very cautious about how much information you share. You know, for me, the, the NDA is slightly the bane of my life, but that is the way of it sometimes, the non-disclosure agreement. Um, what is ideal for me is if a producer approaches is the more information the pos is the, uh, that they can share, the better a suggestion I can make to them. So what I always want to know is what is the show? Um, if you can't tell me exactly what it is, what I really want to know is what the age range is, what the tone is that you really want to go for, go for in the show. Um, if you can give me sort of an analogous show, that is really useful. But of course, you know, with a new show, you might not know yet quite where it will sit. But, you know, if you're looking for somebody that for something that's really great, 
character comedy or something that's more action gag based comedy you know if you can define the tone that you're going for that will really help me to make specific suggestions um i mean it's very easy especially in preschool because it is so often quite format led i could very easily rattle off a list of 10 possible writers and i'm sure they would all be decent but i much prefer to be really specific about um, which writers would work for which show and it is really my job to know my writers and their work really well so that I can make you as a producer really strong and specific suggestions so knowing as much as I can about the show is really helpful it is also helpful to know a vague sense of schedule and sort of what your writing process will be so if it's something that's green lit you know to be able to say we're going to have a writer's room we're all going to pitch in the room and off the back of that we're hoping we're going to have a smallish team and we're hoping that each writer would get five to six episodes knowing something like that is really fantastic because you know that you're going to pitch somebody who's got enough availability for that um you know and that a writer can really get their teeth into a show then i mean sometimes you don't know that but one thing i find very frustrating is if there's going to be a writer's room and it's very vague about whether there'll be episodes or how many episodes there'll be thereafter. Obviously, if stuff is in development, that's a different kind of process. And very often, you won't really know how things are going to pan out. But again, sort of an idea of what you're expecting from schedule and process is really useful. What I always like to hear, but to be honest, this bit tends to come later, is what sort of money is on the table. Um, And... Uh, you know, this is something that really varies from country to country, from project to project, depending on, uh, you know, whether something is greenlit and it's got a distributor and several broadcasters involved, or actually it's something at a whole different point of development. You know, I'm very open and understanding of the different conditions that determine how a show is uh, produced so mm. you know I think being a little bit upfront about the money again really helps uh, me decide who would be the right person for that and I will say absolutely you know, straight up here less money doesn't mean uh, less experienced writers it may do but very often if you know if you've got less money but you can say but we'll be able to offer a larger number of episodes and turn things around fairly quickly you know you can do a pretty quick quid pro quo and people's availability there so yeah i think that about covers it yeah yeah i I think um that's a very good point you're touching on in terms of the different variables that are part of any deal um meaning that it's not only money that uh that you ever negotiate about you always have have these things as you pointed out like schedule or the the status that the project is in how how far it's advanced because again that gives you an indication of of the certainty of of something going yeah. going forward and and as as i said as well like when if it's if it's one very well paid episode versus uh, a bunch of episodes that are paying more um, I mean, you can you can do a quite simple calculation <laughs> around that, I suppose, to, yes. to see what and works. Absolutely. And there are different ways of working. And I mean, obviously, I have to make sure I'm not kicked out of, of agent 
uh, of the agent community here. So I just feel I need to say <laughs> here, Nick, it is all about the money. <laughs> no, is that? And you know, different people are in different circumstances. I mean, you know, we've 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 got a writer who's doing fantastically. But we're waiting on a green light. And while we're waiting on a green light, this writer kind of really needs a job. And a lot of people wouldn't necessarily ask for this writer because they're clearly very successful and doing very, very well. Meanwhile, I'm going, but we could really do so something that would just slot in for the next two months. Yeah. Um, and the other thing about the process, and I, I think this is really key because I, I, I've definitely noticed it more when I've spoken to very experienced producers. You know, they've, they've often, uh, a, a couple of shows where I've got w- with, with very experienced, experienced producers, showrunners, and they've come to me and said, look, the money is only this, but what we will want from that is actually we're going to supply the storylines we're going to want two drafts and then the head writer will take it over and do a polish. Um, and I know these producers and I know these head writers and I know that basically it's going to be a very smooth process. So, you know, that's 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 a perfectly decent, good job to do. There are other series where things are early on in development and you just know it's going to take a while because very often the first series of something however brilliant all the development work is until you actually get into scripting 52 episodes and you've got your storyline and your storyboarders on board and your director on board you know you don't really know how it's going to bed down so very often those first 10-15 episodes on a new series are painful I was trying to think of a more diplomatic word they're painful (laughs) Um, you know and there are often hiatuses in the writing process while you know the head writer comes back and they sort of wrestle with what the format is we know that happens and I think sometimes producers aren't honest enough about it you know we end up as agents going what's happening why aren't we hearing why aren't we hearing Mm. you know I think it's perfectly fair to go actually you know what we're first series we've just got to bed some things down we're doing a little bit of a tweak hold fire we'll be back to you within a month or two you know it's but of course, when you're right in the middle of a situation, it's it's not so easy to step outside it a little bit and see exactly what is happening. So yeah, 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 exactly. Um, while um, while we are on the topic of of negotiation, um, and you said that that was one of the one of the parts of your role that you enjoy. Um, do you have a certain way on how you prepare for negotiations? Because I, I assume that it's a pretty, pretty pretty big part of of what you do every day or at least every week. Do you have a certain process to that? Um, see, how much do I want to give away here? I'm making it sound like there's so much more of a process than there is. Um, I think what is useful is, for me, you know, having being in this area for a while is what I have is a a really good overview of rates, both for my clients, but also across a number of different countries. So what I will have in my mind is very clear, you know, I've got in my head quite a clear rate card of what I think is achievable for different projects, different broadcasters, different territories, and different writers. Um, Certainly, 
to be honest, within the area of kids media, when you're talking about writers for hire on shows, animated shows, or even live action shows, as a writer for hire, that range is fairly limited. You're working in, within a fairly narrow um, ballpark. Obviously, once you get to head writer, showrunner, you're in a different place. Um, and then what I am very aware of is what the, that my, what added value is my client going to bring to this project? Not only in terms of their talent and uh, how brilliant they're going to be creatively in the development process, but also, let's be honest and frank, how their experience and name is going to help a producer to sell that project in the international market. You know, and that carries a value. Yeah, if you, as a producer, can go along to, let's say, for argument's sake, Netflix, with a writer who is pretty shiny, you know, they've been doing really good stuff at a really good level, it is going to help you. And, you know, that is always that payoff. I always think about when I'm doing negotiation, really talking again about sort of the early development stage. For me, it's very much a trade-off of risk. If a producer is prepared to take the majority of the risk, i.e. pay really good development money up front, um, you know, it's their idea, really good development money. So the producer is really absorbing most of the risk there and the writer becomes at that point more of a writer for hire. So absolutely, I will want a good strong role for that writer guaranteed further down the line. But it is slightly different than if a producer is less well-funded and the writer is bringing a different, maybe, or the writers may be bringing a different status to the project. So more of the risk then falls on the writer's shoulders. So let's say it's a writer who is very in demand and if they choose to undertake this development project, then I will want much more of a guaranteed position down the, down the bottom end of things, down the back end. I mean, what for me, I think is, you know, for me, an interesting point, by which I mean a problem um, in, uh, in negotiating at the moment, is if you bring a writer on to develop a project, not necessarily their initial project, original project, but really the writer is going to bring a huge amount to it. One thing I find very difficult is the level of guarantee you can get about that writer's involvement uh, if that project gets greenlit. And, um, you know, I think if, if there's an area that I wrestle with producers most on, it is that, uh, you know, I do feel that if a writer brings enough to the project that gets it greenlit, even if they're not a big name writer, they should absolutely get to be head writer or at least a minimum number of episodes or some involvement. But producers find this difficult to guarantee because who knows who the big complicated um, network of, well, it, all the different stakeholders there are going to be further down the line. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's true. And uh, I've, I mean, as a producer myself, it's, it's also something that uh, I have been, I have been in those discussions and uh, then it's, it's an, always an interesting back and forth I find of, of language that you're adding to a contract with uh, you know 
there being a suggestion from the agent saying, you know, this and this many episodes or this and this guaranteed title or whatever. And and then, you know, us adding in like, okay, um, subject to broadcaster approval. And then the agent coming back with not to be reasonably withheld. So it builds. But I think... Um, I, I would also see that as a another case for building the human relationships first before necessarily going into the first full-on negotiation. Or what would yes. your view be? I I agree. I mean, it's. I, I think when you say you know all oh, this misconceptions of of what agents are, you know, I as an agent it is my job first and foremost to look after my client and to look after their work I am their representative um, and I will always fight for the best possible deal that I can get for them Um, I also have an understanding of the bigger picture and I think you know I'm very interested actually in the whole way that children's media works and that wider way of things working Um, and personally um, I believe that you can get further by working collaboratively with producers and with a real understanding of what it takes to get the show made, because it doesn't matter how brilliant ideal, a deal I get. If I make a deal that protects my writer so strongly that then the producer cannot sell that program forward, yeah. then nobody's better off. Yeah. yeah, but it's it's finding what that middle ground is. And, you know, Nick, you and I have had arguments about this and I will have many further arguments about this, you know, but, but this is the crunch point. And I have a lot yep. of sympathy with producers with this because I also appreciate that, you know, you guys have to sell on to a wide range of uh, stakeholders, be they distributors, a uh, number of different broadcasters, or even if you can just sell to one broadcaster or one platform who will pay enough to make it happen, they will have a lot of demands um, on, on the project that may not be compatible with the deal that we may be already come to. Yeah. So keeping an open line of conversation, I think, is so key on this. And, you know, the number of times I've seen things get nasty is because that line of conversation uh, that line of communication hasn't been kept open whether Mm. not from the producer's end or from the agent's end I mean sometimes you as a producer you're off doing your thing and as an agent we're getting on with our thing you know and we're not necessarily keeping a really close eye on this project because as far as we're concerned it's up and running Mm. so you know that ongoing communication is important and I think as well being realistic about what the broadcaster's requirements are. I mean, if I could make any changes in the world at the moment, you know, I, I, I think, I do think there is a little bit of a culture clash between the sort of European writer for hire way of doing things and the American writer's room way of doing things. I mean, sometimes it's negotiated beautifully and actually the strengths from both systems feed into each other. But I do sometimes worry that a project that's been developed in, 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 in Europe or Africa or the, you know, the East then goes into a, maybe a US platform and they kind of want it to be run in an American way, which means that the people who've been involved in the early stages of creating 
maybe get sidelined. It's, you know, I think it's a little bit of a question of trust in different ways of doing things. And I think it's a little bit of a question of trust in uh, animation companies and production companies, because there's a lot of newer animation companies, newer production companies, who are maybe led by very experienced people, but are maybe not yet proven to the broadcasters. So, you know, I think I am an optimist always, and I believe this trust will come. But I think, you know, I think there are a few projects where that trust is not there as fully as it should be from the broadcasters yet. Maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but that's, you know, just from where I understand things. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think it does create a few problems and it does mean as producers, sometimes it's a difficult, you know, you guys are in a place where you've got to negotiate between the broadcasters, the distributors and the writers and the writers' agents. And, you know, I can absolutely see that you're getting pulled in different directions. Yeah, yeah. Um, the... Um... Can you elaborate uh, a little bit more on the on the differences between those those two models and and where uh, you mentioned the the European writer for hire way and the U.S. writers room way uh, and like how, how how they how the two differ in a nutshell and then what is it exactly what that you know is called is is it the problem that uh, they'll be then staffed differently or whatever but if you if you can kind of go a little bit deeper on that. Sure. Well, I mean, I don't have that much experience with the U.S. system, so, you know, people may well disagree with me on this, but obviously the U.S. studio system has traditionally been writers that are hired and they, they, they go to work and they work in the room uh, and absolutely write collaboratively in the room, team writing, and are there for a number of weeks. Uh, and being in the studio system, they get to be close to the animation side of things as well, which is, you know, so they'll be able to discuss stuff with storyboard artists and have the director there. And I'm talking really specifically about animation, actually, rather than anything else here. Um, uh, and that story, that, that, that room will be run by a showrunner who is somebody who will have um, production experience as well as writing story experience. You'll often have a story editor in the room who, you know, will be, be across the story side of things, but won't be a head writer. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, but the economics of that are that people have a job, writers have a job that they go to and they work solidly on that show for half the year. Um, whereas in Europe, what we tend to have is when something's called a writer's room, um, what we actually mean is uh, a, a kickoff meeting. So maybe two or three days at most, might only be one, uh, of sitting down, discussing the show in the format, pitching ideas in. But then writers will go away uh, and the head writer will take those pitches, move some of them forward to outline work on those outlines with the writers and then the writers will go and write the scripts and they will do that remotely, they will do that from home uh, or wherever they work um, and they may well be working on two or three different shows at the same time um, and moving between different ones. It's not uncommon in, in, in the UK and Europe for writers to be working on at least a couple of shows at, at, at one time because the bonus of that is you get a much wider range of uh, 
of experience different shows uh, but what you don't get to be is close to the production side of it writers are really nowhere near that uh, in my experience of the European and UK setup um, and then that the head writer I mean, we're increasingly using the term showrunner in the UK and there are people in Ireland and there are people who are showrunners. What's quite interesting is they will have tend to have come from production and sort of become writers later. Uh, so people like Melly Buse, um, of course, my mind's gone completely blank and I can't remember anymore at the moment, you know, who are true showrunners. But actually what we tend to have in the UK and Europe much more is actually a head writer. So somebody who's not involved in the production side, they are very much there to work through the story, the story uh, you know, the stories across 52 episodes uh, and they will, you know, work with writers, but they will seriously just be on the writing side. Um, and then you might have a supervising producer or, or somebody who feeds back into that with the writer, but you don't have a showrunner. And one thing that I find where there's a, a culture clash is kind of I do sometimes feel that there's a lack of understanding uh, from the US that we don't have a showrunner and that actually quite often we don't really need one or indeed the setup isn't quite set up. It, the setup here doesn't necessarily require one. Um, but, you know, every production is different. So that's my understanding of sort of the major differences between the two systems. Yeah, yeah. Um, going a little bit more also in, into the into the nomenclature of things, uh, you already kind of said what would be like difference differences between showrunner and a head writer. Uh, another title that I sometimes see kind of being thrown in the mix is script editor. Right. Um, how would you contrast those three? Or, or at least the head writer position to the to the script editor. Fine. Well, sometimes a head writer is a script editor. <laughs> um, it depends on the you know on the scale of the show, uh, but usually they will have a script editor as well. And a script editor's job will be somebody who will, and actually a script editor is so important if you've got a number of stakeholders because a script editor's job is really to be the person who collates the notes from the different people involved. So from the animation side and maybe from the lead broadcaster or two lead broadcasters and maybe the distribution company if they're involved. So they become that central point the notes come into uh, and then they collate those and go through those um, and uh, and will give those and pass those on to the writer. Uh, so for instance, you know, depending on what a head writer what exactly how a head writer defines their role. Very often, a head writer will be really involved at outline stage and then really involved at polish stage. But in between, the script editor will be the person actually collating the notes and moving things between from outline to first draft and first draft to second draft. And then maybe if you have a head writer, they'll come on and do uh, either work on the polish or maybe give final notes for the polish. Um, But again, you know, there are different setups. Some script editors are much nearer head writer and you might not actually have a head writer. You might have a lead writer or you might not even have a head writer at all. Um, and the script editor is the person who's really overseeing the script. 
or it might be a much more junior role. So it's much more of an assisting role to the head writer. So they'll do a lot of the admin and pass that forward to the head writer, or there'll be an initial contact with the individual writers, but the head writer will be copied in on it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think I think the answer, as in many of these cases, is that each each project differs from all the others. But <laughs> yeah. but uh, just uh, I think it's always very helpful to to have at least some of these uh, things uh, that 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 the different titles encompass to kind of have have that in the open because. I mean, I remember working working on uh, the feature film Nico and the Way to the Stars, which was a four-country co-production, and we had four different countries and four different definitions for what exactly was meant when we talked about a shot, a scene, and a sequence. So you know, it it starts. I think it starts with finding common ground about what you're what you're talking about, and then having these different views of people you know and it you don't have to agree with everything but it's just good to understand where people might be coming from when they're talking about something so yeah and that's an excellent point and i you know maybe every production should start off with an idiot guide by saying yeah yeah when we say a premise this is what we mean we mean three lines when we say a pitch we mean an expanded paragraph to half a page when we say an outline we mean a two to three page uh, description or one page maybe two page description of exactly what happens in the episode scene by scene we mean this you know, and, and if you can give examples from previous shows, even different shows, I just, as you say, especially when you're working with an international team, which is happening increasingly, I think actually that first step is to go, let's make sure we're actually all, all on the same page with our terms here. It's incredibly useful, but I think we're all a bit shy of doing it because we kind of <laughs> assume we should know <laughs> this stuff. And we all do well, know this stuff. We just know it differently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and well, that, that is one of the reasons, uh, frankly, that I, I want to do this podcast as well, is that I get the chance to talk about these things with different people and, and just get these different views on, on it. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, I completely agree that a lot of grievances and problems can be avoided uh, if, if you just make sure, because the thing is also that most, you know, most countries, uh, the producers directors, writers, they will not have English as their first language, but nonetheless, it is often the language of the production. So that also brings in an element of uncertainty, like do, do these people, you know, mean what I think they mean? Plus, then what are the cultural differences? Because you have very different approaches to screenwriting, I feel, between like the Nordics or uh, Central Europe, France, and and the UK. So there there is so much room for just not only misinterpretation, but also kind of mm, assuming things that are not necessarily true. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, but it does mean we all need to be a little bit honest about our own sort of unconscious biases and our own yeah. prejudices. Yeah. Uh, you know. It's um, hard. It's hard. It, it is hard, isn't it? We, we, we have to be. We have to be quite honest. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, and, and I, and I, I think I, be willing to be challenged as well. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I feel that um, especially in, in contract negotiations where, where, you, where you list actual deliverables, um, which is what I try to do with, you know, any, any work for hire uh, contracts, you want to know exactly what you are expecting the other party to, to deliver. Yeah. Uh, even there, it might actually, you know, behoove one to, to uh, write out even in a few sentences, maybe what, what does this actually mean? What's the definition for this? So that, you know, you're not expecting to get a Rolls Royce for, you know, uh, for the price of a, a Lada or, or whatever. Um, yeah. I'll, yeah, go on, please. Oh, no, it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, contracts I've been doing recently actually have been ones that, that have got a list of definitions at the beginning of them, you know, both the division, the definitions of the legal terms being used in the contract, but it does also define outline and scene by scene and whatever. So I think that is a, that is a very useful approach. I think just worth saying about contracts is they are... I think a contract is a backstop for what is agreed when, I was going to say when things go wrong, which is not quite the right way of looking at things. But let's say you're in a, you know, you're in a good development process. The, the writer and the producer have a good relationship. The producer and the agent have a, a good enough relationship. Um, you know, and if deliverables have to, if the schedule has to be delayed or something has happened to funding, that means you've got to look at the payment schedule or, you know, something is not as expected by the terms of the contract, then what you would always hope for as an agent is, is that the producer would be able to call, say, this is what our situation is. This is what we're going to be doing to solve it. You know, can we have some leeway here? And usually, hopefully, you know, there will be leeway there. I think, so I think there's always going to be a little bit of an understanding about a contract is that is the place that you go to if you can't, if you can't move forward otherwise. You know, it's your backstop of what you've agreed. So if you get to a point where somebody cannot pay, for instance, uh, but they've been, uh, you know, but but maybe they, they haven't been upfront about the, the challenges that they were facing, or or or, or deliverables go the delivery schedule goes later and later and later to a point where a writer becomes unavailable. Um, but the producer then turns around and says, well, I, I need that script in a week. And you're saying, as an agent, you just can't have it in a week because your way out of where my writer was committed to, they'll do what they can. You know, at that point, that's when you come back to the contract. Uh, and it should be a document that kind of absolutely makes clear your expectations of each other. But if you can work within that for, to change within that, then, you know, then there is a readiness to. I think I'm expressing what I'm meaning here, Nick. Is this, yeah. making, is this making sense to you? I think, you know, yes, absolutely. The contract is the thing that's in black and white and it, you will come back to it if you cannot move forward in another way. Yeah, yeah, I think I've, I've heard two very good um, kind of ways of looking at it. One was uh, uh, taught to me by by our lecturer during during my um, 
studies, uh, he said that a contract is just, you know, uh, a piece of paper where you've written down what you agreed. So it's kind of, it's, it's, it's your notes from, you know, what, what was discussed. Uh, so that if, if somebody, um, you know, people, people's memories can be, can be uh, fickle, uh, you can, you can both go back to the same paper and remind yourself, ah, okay, this was, this is what was agreed. And another interesting, um, I- I- interesting way of looking at this, uh, this was actually from a guest on the, on the Tim Ferriss uh, podcast show. I, I don't remember the name of the guest, but he said that he calls, uh, he he calls these disagreements, not agreements, but disagreements, because that's when that's when you need them. So you yeah. you know he he thinks about it like if there is a disagreement, then what you what what do you do then? Because yeah. as you as you were saying, if it's all smooth sailing, uh, you don't have to refer back to it. It's it's the backstop. It's what you go to when 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 there's when there's a hiccup. Yeah. So that is why we, we as agents will spend so long arguing about nitty gritty in it is because when it comes down to it, we need the language in it to be utterly clear about what those expectations are. Yep. Um, and, it, you know, it can be a frustrating process. I appreciate that. But, you know, I think that is why, because if you get into a situation and what is there in the contract is unclear, then it becomes a very difficult mess. Uh, and the reason why it's difficult is not only that everyone's annoyed, um, but you know we can live with that. It's, it, it affects um, the rights. You know, just really straightforward, it affects the rights that you as a producer have and can assign. So you, know, you do not want to be in that situation where anyone can cast any shadow of a doubt over the rights in a programme that you hold. You just don't want to be there. Exactly. I, I, I think I think it is time well spent. And on the other hand, if you if you end up uh, you know entering multiple agreements with the with the same agent, then hopefully you'll not be you'll not need to renegotiate the the same points after uh, you know more than once. So <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, and, you know, especially if you work with an agency fairly regularly, then you will, you know, have pretty much a boilerplate that, that yeah. you use. So, yes. But these are changing times. And I have to admit, you know, I often will, I, you know, I am now asking for things I would not have asked for a year ago just because the landscape is different. So, uh, yes, it's, it's, there's never a guarantee, unfortunately, because we don't work in an industry with standardised agreements. I mean, I know we talk about standard terms, but what we basically mean is a fairly narrow framework within which we know things are acceptable. It's not the same as standard terms. So every agreement is new and different, unfortunately. Exactly, exactly. Um, we're slowly nearing the end of uh, of the episode, but uh, just switching gears a tiny bit here, I'll ask you a few of my all round questions that I that I try to ask uh, several people uh, okay. who, are, who are coming on to be interviewed. Um, do you have any best tools or resources or anything that that you use currently? That it could be it could be a book, it could be a, an app, it could be 
a website, whatever that that helps you in your daily job, and that might be of benefit to anyone else. Ooh, what a good question. Um, I, I don't think I have anything uh, really exciting to add here. Um, LinkedIn has become actually much more useful than I thought it would be, and I'm quite sure I'm not using it as effectively as I could do yet. Uh, obviously, I keep an eye on all the trades uh, or as many as I can get to. So, um, you know, Kids Green, uh, C21, um, Variety, et cetera, et cetera. Just constant find out who's doing what. Uh, beyond that, I have never yet got into any of these apps that kind of audit your time and how you use your time on different things. So I'm going to listen to the rest of your podcast and see what other people do. <laughs> <laughs> it, could, it could well be useful, but um, no, I'm sorry to say I don't live a very techie life. Uh, they don't have to be techie resources. And and um, I think, you know, the trade mags, they are definitely an important source. And I also feel that LinkedIn has become more useful in the past maybe year or two because I feel they've done some changes to the algorithm that surfaces much more relevant content nowadays. Um, but if, if you're looking for an app uh, to track like how much time you spend on different um, on, on, on different parts of your day, uh, I've tried and, be, uh, and been quite happy with, a t uh, with an app called Toggle, T-O-G-G-L. Uh, I don't have any affiliation with them, so I don't get paid for this <laughs> plug, but it's just something that, that I found useful, if, if that's something you're looking for. That's useful. And listen, I know it's, it's embarrassing to say, but I'm very lucky. Where I work in Covent Garden, we're very near the Thames and the river, and I make sure that I just put everything down and go out for a walk for half an hour every day because, you know, Although mine is not the most creative job, sometimes I just need to process a whole chunk of information and let stuff settle down. And that's where the ideas and the connections come. And so actually, I find the thing that most useful to me is time doing nothing, you know, time doing nothing and just to allow the brain to, you know, go around the back of a problem. That's why solutions happen for me is actually not looking straight at them, but actually taking my brain away somewhere completely different for a little bit is incredibly useful. And I really notice if I've missed a few days walking. That, that is brilliant. I, I, I think that that's exactly the, the, kinds of, uh, the kinds of ideas that I'm after for this. Do you have a se se uh, certain time of day you always do it? Or, or is there some prompt like an issue that you realize I have to ponder this that you then go out? No, because I think if you relied on that, you, you know, you, you would never go in a way it's more like it, it's just a habit it's just a habit of going out of the office at lunchtime half an hour 40 minutes um i can go and explore bits of london there's all sorts of intriguing things hidden away in the streets around here uh and it, so it's just a habit it's just a, it's just a habit to go and uh, so i mean yes certainly occasionally there are times when i'm itchy and, and I know I'm not solving a problem and I'll go out for a walk but more often it's just a question of trying to keep to it regularly. That sounds really good. Um, in closing is there anything I should have asked you but I didn't? Um, uh, oh, I suppose 
I suppose one thing that I would say maybe is, you know, one thing we didn't talk about too much is sort of how an agent works with their writers and that sort of creative role. I, I suppose what it's always worth saying is that it, I, I like to bring, when I can, a bit, a bit of creativity into the job that I do. I mean, as I say, it's back to that jack of all trades part of it. You know, I do love working with writers on their original ideas, but once they are working with a producer, I consider my role creatively is to be actually on the back seat. So, you know, I think it's, it, I think agents do have a role to play creatively and some like to be more involved than others. But on the whole, I think our role is to enable a creative relationship and then to enable the business relationship. Um, so, yeah, that was just something we didn't cover very much, that creative side, so I'd mention it. Yes, definitely, and I I think that that could be that could well be the theme for a follow-up episode. So I I made a big note of that here in my notes <laughs> that we that we get back to that in in our discussion number two. Um, thank you so much, Jean, for for taking time out of your busy schedule, and um, yeah, it was a, a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure too, Nick. Always good to speak. And, uh, and, and, and I hope all the podcasts come together nicely. I look forward to listening to them. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Please uh, do send me your feedback. Do give the podcast a five-star rating if you enjoyed what you heard. And if you want to be kept in the loop on upcoming episodes, you can go to nickdora.com forward slash blog to sign up for the newsletter so you'll be notified about the next episode. Take care. Hear you soon.